Hello, Mark here. Before we begin today's episode, I would just like to quickly take the time to ask all of those who are enjoying the series a favour. If the platform you use to listen to Castings for Ancient Greece has a rating or review system, I would be extremely grateful if you would consider leaving the series a quick review. These ratings and reviews go a long way into helping others discover the show, in turn helping it grow. So if you enjoy the series and can spare a few minutes, I would love to read what you have to say about your experiences with the show. Thanks everyone for your support, and let's get to today's episode. After the Athenians, the Corinthians, Triosians, and Sicyonians proved the best and bravest. Herodotus on the Battle of Mycale. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Castings for Ancient Greece, Episode 66, Corinth, Emergence on the Greek Stage. So last episode, we took some time out from the narrative to begin looking at the city-state of Corinth. I decided to do this since Corinth was now starting to become more active in the sources and was starting to play a bigger role diplomatically as events were moving towards the Peloponnesian War. This I thought was a good opportunity to take a step back and build some context around this city-state we've only spoken about in passing so far. With a better understanding of the development of Corinth and the phases it went through in its early history, we may be able to understand their actions through the classical period as we move forward. In our first episode, we look back to the Neolithic period where some of the earliest signs of human activity could be detected. We then started moving forward where it appeared the site grew and its location as a centre of trade had been recognised. We then saw as the Bronze Age passed, a similar situation occurred on the Isthmus as the rest of Greece, seeing a period of depopulation and cultural regression. However, with the recovery taking place through the so-called Dark Age period, Corinth would once again be a site of growth and prosperity, due to its central location to the Peloponnese and Attica, while also being adjacent to the bodies of water that would feed into the trade-rich seas of the Aegean and Ionian. As the Archaic period began to develop, Corinth would continue to grow in size and wealth. This would see noble families form, vying for influence. One family, the Bacchiades, would manage to take hold on power for a number of generations. However, after discontent within the general population continued to grow, a new political system would develop. This would see the emergence of the tyrant, with Corinth being one of the first city-states in Greece to experience this new form of ruler. Corinth's experience under the tyrants would be mixed. Different sides of society would have different experiences. The people appear to have welcomed this rule and benefited from it. After all, the tyrant, although from the noble class, was in power because of the popular support he received. This, though, would see the old aristocratic order pushed from their positions of power, seen as their birthright. This is why we get mixed reports from the tyrant's rule of Corinth. On the one hand, we hear of mistreatment through physical and economic means, though on the other, we hear of justice now taking shape in the city. For this episode, we are going to continue on from the period where the tyrant's rule came to an end. This will take us through the last century of the Archaic period and into the start of the Classical Age. Corinth would develop into one of the largest and most powerful city-states behind Athens and Sparta. Though as we get to the Greek and Persian wars, we will see through the sources, mostly coming out of Athens, Corinth would be portrayed in a poor light, even though they were fighting in the defence of Greece against the Persian invasion. We'll have a closer look at these instances and try and understand what was happening here, as later historical events may have affected how these events were recorded. This also forms a connection to where we are now in the narrative, as moving forward, Corinth would be a hostile city in Athens' eyes. This also being around the period Herodotus was writing his history of the Persian Wars. 
Once we have looked at this period, we will then quickly sum up the period between the wars where we have seen much political and diplomatic manoeuvring had been taking place. This then should see us in a good position to pick back up the narrative where we will see Corinth involved in a very important incident before the breakout of the Peloponnesian War and a number of diplomatic engagements. Last episode we finished off by seeing the first period of tyranny in Corinth come to an end. It had lasted two generations, but through an act of violence it ended in the third. It appears that the opponents of the tyrannical rule, most notably the nobles, were able to gather enough support within their ranks to act against it. We have seen that we don't have any good real detailed accounts of this time, so it is hard for us to know for certain why the tyranny ended as it did. However, when taking into account how future tyrannies would develop, we can see a pattern of sorts develop. When a tyrant first comes to power, it is through the support from the people, due to improving their conditions or the promise of doing so. This then sees him ruling with popular support, and he needs to maintain this to continue ruling in his own right. This means that in the early period of the history, the figure of the tyrant was not a despotic one, as most welcomed them coming to power. However, problems would start to develop as the original tyrant's rule came to a close. In most occasions, the tyranny would be passed down to the tyrant's eldest son. This is where the interests and motivations that had seen a stable rule begin to falter. The stability of the tyrant now rested on a new personality, who had not been part of the reason for the tyranny forming in the first place. Much like kingships, they would differ widely as they passed down in the family line. It could well be the case that this was the situation in Corinth's first tyranny. By the third generation, it no longer had the public support it once had, and was now vulnerable to other political powers developing. This change in political organisation in Corinth was also marked by the first Isthmian Games. Earlier in the series we spoke about the Olympic Games and how they were part of the Panhellenic Games, where four separate festivals would develop. The Isthmian Games would be one of the four Panhellenic Games, which would see Greeks from all over the Mediterranean travel to take part in. This was a sign that a common Greek culture was growing throughout the mainland. Like with the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games had a tradition going back to the heroic age, with it being credited to the founding figures in Corinth's history. Though in historical record, the first games would take place in 582 BC. We also get the picture that Corinth was continuing to flourish after the period of the tyranny. No doubt the city was benefiting from all the measures and developments made by Kypsilus and Periander. But even after the fall of the tyranny, signs of continued growth can be seen. Minted coins were a new development in the ancient world, with them first appearing in the Lydian kingdom. They would then make an appearance in the Greek world in Aegina around 600 BC. Not too much later, but Corinth would also begin minting their own coins in 570 BC. These early adopters of coinage were known trading cities, so it would make sense that they would be some of the first. They would have had contact with the Anatolian coast where it first developed. Over time it would also start to prove its value in the trade markets. We would then see perhaps some of the most tangible evidence of Corinth's wealth with the construction of more public buildings on the Acropolis. The largest of these would be the construction of the Temple of Apollo in 550 BC. As you might remember last episode, Apollo had been granted control over the high-lying areas of the Isthmus, including the Acropolis, at Corinth. With the arrival of the mid-500s, we would now see the development of Corinth's diplomatic stance within the Greek world. Many city-states were beginning to flourish throughout the mainland and Aegean where now these cities and lesser powers were looking for security to protect their interests. We had seen that Sparta had been through a series of wars where the results were hardly decisive. However, they would turn to diplomatic measures that would see them eventually become the most influential power on the Peloponnese. What would be born out of these dealings is what is known as the Peloponnesian League. A major development in seeing this league come about was the hostility between Argos and Sparta, 
Both had emerged as two power centres on the Peloponnese, but now their interests were overlapping. City-states near Argos were concerned of its growth and how they would fare. This saw them look to Sparta for security. This is where the league would be born, with Mantinea, Phileas, Epidaurus and Tegea and other smaller city-states on the Argolid being the first to make up the members of the league. It was also during this period where Corinth became a member. Being situated on the Isthmus opening out onto the Peloponnese, Corinth was also close to Argos and its interests. The Peloponnesian League would not be a collective alliance, but rather a collection of individual alliances to Sparta. The members of the League did not have responsibilities and agreements to each other, they only had an official agreement with Sparta. So why did Corinth join this League in the 550s? This is a question we don't get any direct answer to in the sources. We need to remember that most of our sources come out of Athens, and they are mostly concerned with Athenian affairs, followed by Spartan ones. After this, for the most part, the other Greek cities and their place in the historical record are known to us through being brought up in context of these two cities. However, by looking at the situation of the time and the geography, we can perhaps arrive at a general understanding. We know by this stage that Sparta was being viewed as one of the most powerful city-states on the mainland. We even saw Croesus of Libya supposedly recognising this, as per Herodotus' account. Athens at this point was on the rise, however, Corinth's interests were more closely tied with the Peloponnese. The other centre of power that was developing on the Peloponnese was that of Argos. Corinth was situated fairly close to Argos and the lands it controlled, while Sparta was deeper within the Peloponnese. This made Argos a far greater threat to Corinth, and we saw many other city-states that were within Argos's area of influence forming an alliance with Sparta, becoming members of the Peloponnesian League. It would appear protection from Argos was one of the primary factors in many city-states, including Corinth, seeking its Spartan alliance. Added to this consideration would have also been their position on the Isthmus. As we have already established, this was a very important strategic route for trade, by sea and by land. It would have been a very attractive target for Argos that could manage to extend their influence that far north. Though it would also be a very attractive target for cities north of the Isthmus, such as Athens. So it appears Corinth was looking to protect themselves from their closest powerful neighbours, while Sparta was far enough away not to cause any direct threat to the city. If you have a look at a map of Greece, you can see the relation of these city-states to Corinth, which, I think, what I've outlined provides a plausible explanation. I've also placed a map of the area on the episode page on the website. So this shows us the development of the diplomatic situation Corinth would find itself in, and would come to shape its decisions and interests through two of the largest wars of the Classical Age. However, before this, we would find, within the sources, Corinth becoming one of Sparta's most important allies, and one they needed to support them more often than not. While we would see Corinth would also be taken seriously on the diplomatic front in the Greek world, with them arbitrating between warring cities. During the later parts of the 6th century, Sparta would be involved in warfare with its competitor on the Peloponnese, Argos. During these conflicts, Corinth would act as an ally on Sparta's side. However, it would be in a separate campaign where we would first see the growing importance of Corinth within the Peloponnesian League. This would be in a conflict with the island of Samos across the Aegean, just off the Anatolian coast. This is the same island we recently saw Athens going to war with some 85 years later. It appears this earlier conflict originated with Samos having gone through a recent regime change. With the tyrant Polycrates ruling the island now, we hear of Samian exiles approaching Sparta for aid in overthrowing him and re-establishing the old order. 
Why the Samians approached Sparta had been explained as either strong ties that had existed between the old ruling class families and Spartans, or during the Second Mycenaean War, Samos under the old order had been one of Sparta's allies, so there was an obligation to repay the alliance. We would also hear through Herodotus that the Corinthians were very willing to assist in this campaign, due to a past insult suffered generations earlier. This was during the time of the tyrant Periander, who supposedly sent 300 boys from Corsara to be turned into eunuchs at Sardis. The boats carrying the boys put in on Samos, where the people became aware of the boys' fate. They told them to take refuge in a temple where they then refused the Corinthians to enter. The Corinthians then sought to starve the boys out, but the Samians devised a way to keep the boys fed by holding a festival that would see dances taking place by the temple each night. During these celebrations, they would take food by the temple, where the boys would reach out and take what was offered. Eventually, the Corinthians tired of waiting for the boys to leave the safety of the temple and sailed away without the 300 boys. However, what this alliance highlighted was the important role Corinth would hold within the Peloponnesian League. If Sparta were to act alone, it would have been very difficult for them to arrange a campaign this far across the Aegean. Sparta was seen as a land power, situated inland and with no real naval tradition. Corinth, though, was a naval power and, according to Thucydides, had introduced the trireme design into Greece during the 8th century BC. Out of all Sparta's allies, it would be Corinth that possessed the largest navy. This would then see it was essential to have their backing in matters that required travel across the sea. In the end, this campaign would result in a protracted siege that would end up seeing the Spartans and their allies abandoning it and returning home. Though, this period highlights the important role Corinth held within the Peloponnesian League. We find another example of Corinth's status within the Greek world when they would step in to mediate affairs between Athens and Thebes in 519 BC. Conflict had developed between the two after the small polis of Plataea near Thebes had sought an alliance with Sparta, attempting to avoid being absorbed by Thebes. Sparta had rejected the proposal and advised they should seek Athenian assistance. Herodotus tells us this was not out of any goodwill, but rather an attempt to create problems between Athens and the Boeotian cities, Thebes being the largest. Plataea would seek an alliance with Athens, where it would be agreed to. This then had the result of seeing Thebes arrange an army to march towards Athens. Before a battle would be fought, Corinth would intervene and arbitrate matters between the two. This would see a border set between the two regions, and a condition that Thebes was not to intervene in other Boeotian cities that did not wish to join the Boeotian League. The Corinthians would then leave back home, with it appearing all were satisfied with the outcome. However, when Athens made the return home, the Theban forces then followed, and set upon the Athenians where a battle broke out. Athens would be victorious, and the result of the victory would see that the agreed border would now be pushed back into Boeotian lands. I think before we move on to the Greco-Persian War period, we will look at one last example showing Corinth's influence within events taking place on the mainland. We have seen in the series, Sparta had meddled in Athenian affairs through the closing decades of the 500s. This intervention was occurring around Athens' foray with tyranny, where Sparta would help eject Hippias from power, while a few years later, Isagoras of Athens would call upon Spartan support to help set him up in a position of power. Cleomenes would come to his aid and would see to it that Chlysisthenes was exiled from the city along with his supporters. However, on arriving in Athens with a small force, the Spartans, along with Isagoras and his supporters, would be besieged on the Acropolis by the Athenian people. Eventually, the Spartans would be sent back packing to the Peloponnese, while Isagoras escaped and his supporters were massacred. This would end up resulting in Chlysisthenes being recalled and would take up a leading role in Athenian politics. 
though Cleomenes was humiliated during this ordeal and sought revenge. This would see the Peloponnesian League gathered to march onto Attica. The force would head north and would reach Eleusis, where we then hear Corinth having an impact on matters and the disintegration of the campaign. Once in Attic territory and on the verge of conflict with Athens, Herodotus would tell us, just before the battle could begin, the Corinthian contingent, reflecting that they were acting wrongfully, changed their minds and withdrew. This would see other contingents follow suit as well as King Demaratus, resulting in the campaign not being able to be continued. Cleomenes would have no choice but to march the remaining Spartan troops back home. We are also told this would be the point where Sparta would make it illegal for both kings to march out on campaign together. One would need to remain in Sparta while the other was on campaign. Herodotus does not expand on why Corinth would all of a sudden object to the campaign, but a couple of explanations have been put forward. One rests on the fact that the Peloponnesians were unable to secure a forward base at Eleusis, as apparently the Athenians had secured it the previous year. This the Corinthians then saw as the campaign being untenable, as they would not be able to establish a secure supply point and line of communication. While another explanation looks to explain Corinth's unwillingness to continue the support of the campaign on the basis of an alliance Athens had supposedly made a year or so earlier with Persia. We have spoken before about how it was possible that Athens had made an alliance with Persia when they were seeking protection from Spartan aggression. This being through the story Herodotus tells us of the Athenian envoys supposedly agreeing to submit to Darius with tokens of earth and water, though not aware of what these tokens actually meant. The thinking here is that it was only at this point that the Peloponnesian League became aware of this alliance and had no stomach to embroil themselves in a war with Persia. Corinth would be the first, perhaps even representing the smaller Peloponnesian cities, to voice their hesitation at the implications that lay ahead if they were to attack Athens. Though this episode shows that Corinth was seen as a major partner within the Peloponnesian League, if other Peloponnesian cities were also willing to follow their example. So this gives us a good look at how Corinth was developing as a power within the Peloponnese, as the Archaic period was coming to a close. This now sees us heading to the Greco-Persian War period, where Corinth would also play a role in the defence of Greece. However, what we would see during the coming years is that Corinth within Herodotus' account would be presented in a negative light, their performance on the field of battle called into question. Though it appears later political realities during the time Herodotus was writing in his histories may have had an impact on how Corinth was presented. As we explore some of these episodes through the Persian conflict, we will see if what is presented is warranted and then turn to what may have been influencing our sources coming out of Athens. The Persian invasions of Greece would first occur in 490 BC. However, this first invasion would be met by Athens and a small Plataean contingent. Sparta would be approached by Athens for aid, but they would not arrive at Marathon until after the decisive battle had already been fought. If Sparta had decided to march earlier and join the defence, it was almost certain that its allies would have also joined, this including Corinth. It wouldn't be until the period of the Second Persian Invasion where we would see Sparta, the Peloponnesian League, along with Corinth, taking an active role. This would first be realised through the creation of what is known as the Hellenic League, an alliance of Greek city-states committed to the defence of Greece in the face of the Persian invasion. It is unclear how many times this league met and where some of the initial meetings took place, though it would seem very likely that delegations were travelling between Sparta and Athens early on, with perhaps one of the first meetings of the League members taking place at Sparta. However, one of the first most organised meetings that took place between the participating city-states in what would be described as a congress was on the Corinthian Isthmus at Corinth. 
This would prove to be the midway point of all the Hellenic League members, as well as a good position to set ship sail from. The other point to note here that becomes more obvious through the campaign is that the Peloponnesian League were in favour of setting the line of defence for Greece on the Corinthian Isthmus. This would see Corinth as an excellent location to establish a camp for the Greek defenders to keep the defensive line well supplied and manned. It would be at this conference at Corinth where the military actions for the coming defence would be arranged. The first action would be to send a Hellenic League force all the way into Thessaly to the Tempe Pass. Though it isn't clear if Corinth was present in this force, as only Spartan and Athenian troops were referred to. This defensive attempt would prove to be untenable, and the force would make their way back to Corinth. This would then see what appears to be a more planned out response arranged, with a land force sent to the Pass of Thermopylae and a naval force sent to Artemisium. Herodotus provides a list of all the Greek contingents that would prepare a defence at Thermopylae, where we would hear 400 Corinthians would accompany the rest of the force. We don't get any accounts of the Corinthians during the three-day battle, and it is assumed that they departed the pass before the final stand took place, as we are only told of the Spartans, Thespians and Thebans remaining. Have you been enjoying the series and thinking of helping support the show in some way? Casting Through Ancient Greece is over on Patreon, where we have been providing supporters with monthly bonus episodes, where we look at past topics in more detail and isolation. So far we have revisited the Bronze Age of Greece looking at art, trade connections, warfare and a number of other topics. We then advanced into the Archaic Period where we then spent some time exploring the little known Latitine War, the Olympic Games and emergence of the Hoplite and other areas. This then saw us turn to doing a three-part series on the epic poet Homer, where we also explored the two epic poems the Iliad and the Odyssey that are credited to him. Currently we are exploring the developments of both Sparta and Athens in more detail. We have recently dealt with the origin myths of both Sparta and Athens, as well as looking at some of the early influential figures coming from both cities. Currently, we are exploring the institutions that would develop in both of these cities, with us having focused on the Spartan Agoge and Helot system, while in Athens we are looking at their political reforms through the restructure of tribes and the political mechanism of the ostracism. If you are interested in gaining access to these bonus episodes, please consider heading over to the Casting Through Ancient Greece Patreon page. Not only will you get monthly bonus episodes, but you will receive early access, ad-free episodes, plus video series updates about what's been happening in the series and what is planned. Other options also include access to fully referenced transcripts of the series episodes, where members' questions are answered monthly via video. Alternatively, you can head to the Casting Through Ancient Greece website, where you can find the Patreon link, as well as other ways that help the series grow when clicking on the Support the Series button. Thank you for listening to the series, and I look forward to perhaps seeing you over on Patreon. At Artemisium, we would hear that Corinth would provide 40 of the 270-odd triremes present. Herodotus also tells us that when the Greeks arrived and saw the massing of the Persians, the Peloponnesian contingent wanted to abandon the strait. This would have been a very unfavourable development for the Eubians, whose territory the Greek force was deployed on. A series of bribes would take place where Themistocles would secure the commitment of the Spartan commander of the Greek naval forces, Eurybiades. This bribe was to see that he would have the Peloponnesian contingents agree to stay. For the most part, it seems he was successful in this task, though it would be the Corinthian commander, Adimentus, who would still see that withdrawal was a risk. This seeming to show once again that Corinth was not just a small poli that would follow along with the desires of Sparta. Corinth appears to have the power to consider its own interests and voice their concerns even if it were at odds with Sparta. Though, to gain Corinthian support, 
Themistocles saw that Adimentus would also need to be approached with a bribe, this highlighting Corinth's influence within the Hellenic League. Once this had been done, the Greek force would remain as one, where they would fight for the next three days. On the third, news of the fall of Thermopylae reached them, and withdrawal for a better position now took place. We don't get any detailed accounts of Corinthian actions during the three days at Artemisium, but in the next battle at Salamis, we would hear a little more about Corinth's involvement in league diplomacy and combat. We had seen that after the Greek fleet, after departing Artemisium, would then make for the island of Salamis, just off the Attic coast. Here, the Athenians assisted their citizens to cross over onto the island, as the Persian forces were now making their way into Attic territory. It's at this stage that the debate erupted over the best way forward in the campaign. Most of the Peloponnesian members were looking to make the Isthmus of Corinth the main defensive line, seeing the main effort would be on land. This would appear to be the course of action decided on. Though Themistocles would persuade Eurybiades to halt preparations to depart and call a council of war he would address. It is here we find the Corinthian commander, Adimentus, once again placed as the main hurdle to Athenian interests. I will read out the sections from Herodotus that concern the exchange between Adimentus and Themistocles while summarising the other sections. When they were assembled and before Eurybiades had a chance to put forward the reason he had called the generals together, Themistocles spoke at length in accordance with the urgency of his request. While he was speaking, the Corinthian general Adimentus, son of Octes, said, Themistocles, at the games those who start before the signal are beaten with rods. Themistocles said in justification, those left behind win no crown. Herodotus then goes on to say that on this occasion, Themistocles was gentle in his reply, before then addressing Eurybiades over the matter. He would argue that sailing away to the Isthmus would see the Greeks lose Salamis, Megara, Aegina, and not to mention lose Attica for good. He also argued by sailing to the Peloponnese, the Greeks would be at a disadvantage during any future naval engagements, as they would take place in open waters. He then pushed for giving battle at Salamis, as this would see them having an advantage over the Persian numbers, since they would be fighting in the straits. He also added that this would see them defending the Peloponnese, while they could also save those north of the Isthmus. To then finish off, he would add that victory here, at Salamis, would ultimately stop the Persian advance. This is now where we hear Herodotus bring Adimentus back into the debate, who had been listening on. As Themistocles said this, Adimentus, the Corinthian, attacked him again, advising a man without a city should keep quiet and that Eurybiades should not ask the vote of a man without a city. He advised Themistocles to contribute his opinion when he provided a city, attacking him in this way because Athens was captured and occupied. This time Themistocles said many things against him and the Corinthians, declaring that so long as they had 200 man ships, the Athenians had both a city and a land greater than theirs, and that none of the Hellenes could repel them if they attacked. After this attack on Adimentus, Herodotus tells us he went back to addressing Eurybiades, where he, still heated, began addressing him in stronger terms, where eventually he ended in saying, if the Peloponnesians failed to stand at Salamis, then the Athenians would have no choice but to take their 200 ships and make a new home in Italy, leaving the Peloponnesians to deal with the Persian invaders. Supposedly with this threat in mind, Eurybiades would agree to stay. The Battle of Salamis would eventually take place, but more manoeuvrings on Themistocles' behalf had had to be taken after debate once again rose after the vast Persian navy had sailed into the vicinity of Salamis. We had covered this in detail during our episode on the Battle of Salamis, which included Themistocles' secret message sent to Xerxes. 
However, it is during this Battle of Salamis that we would once again hear about the Corinthians, and once again Herodotus doesn't paint an agreeable picture with them. We would hear that as the battle was about to get underway, the Athenians were positioned at one end of the line, and Sparta at the other. All the other Greek contingents were positioned between the Athenians and Spartans, except for the Corinthians. Herodotus reports a story that he says the Athenians recount. The Corinthians had set sail leaving the rest of the Greeks at Salamis to fight, though once learning of the Greeks getting the upper hand, they returned as the battle was finishing up. Though we find in another source, and even looking deeper into Herodotus' account of the Persians surrounding the Greek force, that they may have left the line of battle, but for good reason. As well as Herodotus relating the opening of the straits having been blocked, Diodorus would talk of the Persians infiltrating into the straits to try and catch any fleeing Greek ships, as the battle got underway. So it appears that if what Herodotus reports of the Corinthians leaving the line being true, it could have been to deal with the threat of the Persian forces coming in from the other end of the strait. If these were not checked, it would see the Greeks assaulted on multiple angles. As we are aware, the Greeks would be victorious at Salamis and essentially put an end to the offensive operations from the Persians, with Xerxes returning back into the Persian Empire. However, a Persian force under Mardonius would remain, which would end up resulting in the largest land battle in the Greek history to this point. There would be nearly 12 months between the Battle of Salamis and Plataea, where we had seen in the series there were plenty of diplomatic manoeuvrings happening to bring the Peloponnesians back out of the Peloponnese after they had returned home after their victory at Salamis. Sparta and the Peloponnesians still wanted to see the Corinthian Isthmus as a new defensive line, but Athens was arguing for the Greeks to mount an offensive land campaign against the remaining Persians. Mardonius was aware of the rift in the Greek camp and attempted to approach Athens with terms. Sparta was well aware of this taking place and sought to be present to see Athens reply. In the end, Athens would play to the Persian overtures for Sparta's benefit to try and get them to act. Finally, in the campaigning season of 479 BC, the Peloponnesians would march out of the Peloponnese and join up with the Athenians. The Persians, who had retaken Athens for a second time, retreated back into Boeotia, just outside of Thebes. The Greek force would march to oppose the Persians, where they would form their line along the base of the Scytheron Mountains, near the small polis of Plataea. So we have covered the Battle of Plataea in quite some detail earlier in the series, where I devoted three episodes to it. For this reason, I wanted to skip through to the day of the decisive action, where an action by the Corinthians is focused on. A plan had been devised for the entire Greek line to move back to more defensible ground, while also putting them back in contact with their lines of communication. This manoeuvre would take place during the night under the cover of darkness. Corinth, who had 5,000 hoplites at Plataea, were stationed in the centre with some other city-states. They had suffered a great deal of attention from the Persian cavalry through the day, but as night fell it was time to put in action the plan of withdrawal. The centre of the line was supposed to head to a terrain feature known as the island, outside of Plataea. The agreed plan went astray, reinforcing the notion that no plan survives first contact with the enemy, which many military commanders throughout history would learn. The Greek contingents, including the Corinthians who made up the centre, had a tough day in the face of repeated Persian attacks. Instead of withdrawing to the island, they now proceeded to make their way back until reaching the outskirts of Plataea. Here, they would have found a much more defensible position. Two lines of thought can be drawn here, as Herodotus suggests, their retreat to Plataea was due to the fact that they attempted to put much distance between themselves and the Persians, after having suffered so much from them during the day. Though another possibility could have been the fact that they were conducting manoeuvres at night with some 15,000 troops. Conducting night operations with large bodies of troops has been notoriously difficult all throughout history. 
The landmark of the island may not have been obvious during the night, while Plataea stood out, drawing the centre towards it. We then hear later that when Sparta was getting the upper hand over the Persians and turned them into a rout, the troops back in Plataea began to move again, with some coming forward in disorder, while Corinth would manoeuvre through the safety of the foothills. Nevertheless, Herodotus would describe them as not accomplishing anything noteworthy. It is worth noting that this appearance of inactivity of Corinth after the retreat is the picture we get from most of the sources, which would seem to be drawing from Herodotus' account. There is a poem that was composed by Simonides, which Plutarch records, that refers to the Corinthians' involvement during Plataea, and gives a different picture of their conduct. In the mist were men, in warlike feats excelling, who Ephere, full of springs, inhabited, and who in Corinth, Glaucus's city, dwelling, great praise by their great valour merited, of which they too perpetuate the fame, to the gods of well-wrought gold did offerings frame. So it could be possible that the centre would play more of a role in the victory at Plataea than what has survived in the recorded histories we have. Also, as we have seen pop up now and again, the political motivations of the periods these histories were being recounted in would see a bias be inserted into the accounts. Though there is one point in Herodotus' account where we see him assign recognition to the Corinthians, where he is talking about the victory at the Battle of Macale, taking place over the Aegean around the same time as Plataea. Here he would say the Corinthians had proved to be the best and bravest during the battle behind the Athenians. However, for the most part we would see Corinth in Herodotus' account being given a bad rap during the Greek and Persian wars. Though there is one dedication that was created to commemorate the Greeks' victory over the Persians that would suggest Corinth had played a much more significant role in the war. What's known as the Serpent Column recorded the names of all 31 city-states that had defended Greece, with Sparta, Athens and Corinth being listed as the top three polis. This perhaps making us think twice about the slanderous reports of the Corinthians found throughout Herodotus' account. The Greeks were in the habit of listing at the top of monuments and dedications those seen as most important. Well, I think this is a good point to finish up our look at the developments of Corinth. This negative view that we would see portrayed throughout the Greek and Persian War period is mostly thanks to Herodotus and the later writers that used him as their major source. Though we need to understand the time that Herodotus was writing in. Although he explains events at the time when Corinth was in an alliance with Athens, he was writing his histories just as the Peloponnesian War had started. The relations between the city-states had shifted, as we have been seeing through the episodes we have been doing on the 50-year period between the wars. Corinth, as the Peloponnesian War broke out, would become an enemy of Athens, and as we shall see, they played a major part in diplomacy leading up to the outbreak of the war. Not only this, but we had seen them also play a big role in the First Peloponnesian War. Also, as we have seen, Herodotus had written his histories in Athens, and most probably received some sort of funding or patronage. There probably would have been some topics that would have been unfavourable to bring up unless they had been tinged with a view that the Athenians would have found acceptable. It would appear Corinth was one of these topics, and the only way to include them in the heroic defence of Greece was to highlight them as being difficult and unreliable members. However, as we have seen, there are bits of evidence that perhaps show they are undeserving of these titles. Like I have said, we are currently at the point in the series where we have seen Corinth take a more leading role in the sources. They continued their elevated position within the Peloponnesian League, wielding more influence than any other member, apart from Sparta. Some of the most influential events they became involved in was being one of the major players of the First Peloponnesian War, 
taking a leading role in a number of military matters until Sparta became involved. We also saw how they would supposedly put a stop to the campaign Sparta was thinking of launching to assist Samos during their revolt with Athens. Once again this rested on the fact that Corinth would be the one supporting the naval aspect of the campaign, though they did not agree to intervening in the Athenian sphere of influence. Now in the series, we are seeing Corinth starting to play a bigger role in intercity state diplomacy. This would see Corinth along with the rest of the Peloponnesian League under Sparta become more hostile once again to Athens, seeing the 30 years peace not last the distance. But to see this Peloponnesian war develop, it would be matters over Corinth and its colonies that would spark the path to this great war that would engulf the entire Greek world. I hope the last two episodes have given a bit more detail to the city-state of Corinth and the development up to the eve of the Peloponnesian War. I think we are now in a good position to continue our narrative where we had just left after the Samian War. This will now see us in 439 BC, just seven years before the breakout of the Peloponnesian War. But we still have a couple of pivotal events to cover that would see war break out between the two spheres of power that had developed within Greece. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the show and have been supporting it on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution has truly helped me grow the series. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or at Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. Once again everyone, thank you for the support and I hope you look forward to the next episode where I'll be presenting an interview with Professor James Deagle from Odysseus Unbound. <laughs>